0: Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and it's my pleasure to have back on the show a repeat guest, Dr. Michael Adam Beck. He's the author of Painting with Ashes, When Your Weakness Becomes Your Superpower. Michael is a prolific author, but without a doubt, this is his very best book. He gets really personal. Uh, But the book isn't just about his story. It's a story about God's mission and on how we can use the missional call of Jesus to bring hope and healing in our broken world. We have a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about VR church. uh, We talk about imagination. And we talk about East Stanley Jones and how East Stanley Jones is is kind of now a kind of a new mentor for Michael but most of all you're going to capture Michael's heart for mission. I know I'm always inspired whenever I have the privilege of speaking with Michael. So let's jump in to this week's conversation around his book Painting with Ashes When Your Weakness Becomes Your Superpower. And let me say before we move to the interview. If you find this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and consider subscribing. Uh, Thank you. And let's listen in to Michael. Hey, welcome back to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Michael, it is always a treat to have you on.
1: I'm blessed to be here. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you. And
0: we've, uh, we'll have the, I'll have links to the other episodes where I've talked to Michael about his various projects. But he's now has what I believe is maybe his finest book, and I think you've sensed that and you've gotten feedback. Painting with Ashes: When Your Weakness Becomes Your Superpower. So catch us up a little bit, Michael, or maybe just briefly introduce yourself to folks who may have not have had the privilege of hearing you before, and how have you gotten to this space now where you're publishing a book that's um, part autobiographical.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a United Methodist elder, I'm a pastor, um, <clears throat> mostly my day-to-day life, my, my primary gig, if you will, is the local church, love the local church, um, the local church shaped me, formed me. So my wife and I serve as co-pastors of a network of uh, inherited congregations, more traditional and um, some missional communities all kind of connected in what I like to call a blended ecology of church with more attractional inherited and missional modes kind of living together. And then I teach at the seminary at United Theological Seminary, had the uh, awesome blessing to create the first Fresh Expressions House of Studies in the world at United. So that's been really fun, have some amazing students that I get to work with and learn beside. Um, And then I just became the director of Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference. So I have sold my soul to the empire and I'm now, um fully in the dark side no just kidding that's an inside joke
0: yeah that's that's that, that that is and it's a it's a blessing and again thanks for serving the local church and the thing that still excites me most as a as a seminary professor myself and i know you're having the, the blessings of working through united is you get to serve folks and it's, it's not exclusively persons that are going into into pastoral ministry but they're still god's still calling men and women And it's uh, truly, I'm always excited when I ask my students to introduce themselves and they just talk about, I love local church ministry, whether it's rural, urban church planning, they love that. And I'm just grateful that you continue to model that. And even though you have leadership positions, you keep skin in the game and you're um, you're building teams on the ground and uh, still being a local church pastor. Yeah, amen. Share Love a little it. bit, uh, just to update folks. Like, what, what, hmm. where, where do you sense Fresh Expressions is going? And um, you know, and let's even say it funny. Like, what's fresh about Fresh Expressions now in twenty twenty two? Would you say? So, is there such a thing as stale expressions? Right. Um,
1: yeah, it's been really cool. I just actually I forgot to tell you about this, but I got a chapter coming out with Alan Hirsch in a book called Red Skies, and we were trying to forecast out like. Um, 30 years into the future what what the church is looking like and I see the fresh expressions movement it has many iterations new missional community simple church organic church this idea of church kind of happening anywhere out in the daily rhythms of life with normal every day if there's such a thing as an average Christian I don't know that there's an ordinary Christian there's only extraordinary ones right but um Cultivating forms of church in their daily practices. So as we see, as we see the inherited institutional church and those systems kind of diminishing and decline, um, <clears throat> we're seeing more and more bivo, co-vocational pastors, lay people serving as ministers to their just their normal communities and friendship circles. So I see that as the future. The blended ecology is only going to increase more and more as, um, you know church as we know it, the the really inherited professional minister, all the things that are connected to that kind of diminishes more and more. We're seeing more and more this missional form of church becoming kind of like the normal mode, which I think is really cool.
0: And and you have the matrix there behind you. And you joke <laughs> that you spend a lot of time digitally. And, and there's a lot of pastors that listen to this that, and it's been hard, right? The last two years, if folks weren't hadn't moved into these digital spaces uh, everybody has in some level and a lot of folks are hoping they can get out of it when they can right so you find it helpful and you've used it to good advantage so how would you encourage folks to stay engaged digitally even as we begin to be able to be in person with each other again and and talk about maybe how you've seen um folks become discipled, maybe in ways that they they wouldn't have been able to be discipled if there wouldn't have been digital expression. So don't want you to share a little bit about their your experiences in the matrix.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think there's some really unhelpful theology around uh, digital church right now. And there's a couple, I think, issues with it. For one, when we are online, we are still embodied persons, right? You and I, through distance contact, we're connected right now in a built environment. It's just not the built environment of a sanctuary or whatever, but our bodies are still communicating. Our our brains are functioning. We're embodied. Our fingers, every part of us, is you know um, uh, uh, fully present. So I think this idea that church can't happen digitally, that there's no koinonia or real relationships, that we just it's it's a missional cul-de-sac, in my opinion. Um, And so some of the things we've been doing is like we have church in VR now it's called living room church and so uh, there's a billion people in VR that. uh, You know they're just they're most of them are never going to come to a Sunday morning worship experience, no matter how cool we do it. And I think the blended ecology, we need to think about it, not just like inherited church buildings that we own and like third place kind of missional communities all over the place, but we have to think the digital realm also is a kind of a third place where we cultivate new Christian communities. Um, And just for instance, like you would some people that I know um, that they're they're maybe more introverted, uh, more like you would say, that person doesn't seem like a church planter to me, right? But you put them in their digital element with their people around their kind of like passions and hobbies and interests. And they come alive and they're pastoring a congregation. It's just happening digitally. And like in VR church, it's totally global. So we have, every time we gather, there's people from Africa. There's people from the UK. There's people from Australia. People of all different faiths, which you have to contend with a little bit and navigate that. But like last week we had, it sounds like a joke, but it's like a Muslim, a couple of Christians and um, a Baha'i person was there and an atheist and there's like 60 people gathered in this digital space, walk into a digital space, right? There's, there's the, the, the joke. But this Muslim asked a really challenging question. And it, there was some practicing um, Jews in there as well. And um, he said, well, if God's love is unconditional, then God can't throw people into hell. And so that <clears throat> came up in our sermonic conversation time and we navigated it and people gave different kind of perspectives on the way that they think about that. But Jesus was fully at work and alive in that space. And um, people are wrestling with their faith. They're growing discipleships occurring in and, and ways maybe. And this is not, I'm just, I'm not trying to knock down the, the um, I, I pastor a traditional congregation. We still get together on Sundays. We do all the stuff that you do in a worship service. But um, that full kind of discipleship, that deep intimacy and sharing of, of questions and wrestling I mean, what I hear a lot of young people saying is, I don't want to really be indoctrinated. I, I don't want to be told, like, this is what you got to do and believe and, you know, say the, the creed and you got the gate code to the kingdom. I want to have conversation. I want to, like, ask questions. I want to, I'm fascinated by Jesus and I just have these questions. And so we're trying to create, you know, space for people to do that. And I, don't, I don't know that any environment really lends itself to that better than digitality because it lowers our, our, our inhibitions. People are, and the cool thing about VR, which we're just on the edge of this, but I think it'll become, you know, one of the dominant forms of church over time. You actually can touch each other and we lay hands on each other and pray, like you're embodied as an avatar. So you're in your virtual reality headset, but you can, you can touch and hold, we hold hands and say the Lord's prayer at the end. And so it's, it's, it's a whole nother level of being embodied really. It's just happening in a digital space.
0: So when you say VR, you actually are talking about like putting on like what the Oculus lenses or whatever. I mean, that's, that's a particular brand. And then, so you're going into some, so yeah, that's what I was wondering. And when you say touch this, just pure curiosity, does that mean you have sensors or does it just look like you're touching somebody? I mean, it is you, you, I've seen these like. I forgot, I've seen some of the early VR spaces, and you can, so you're there, and you can have your own face on it if you want to, or you can be whatever. But, but so when you touch somebody, can you really touch them? I mean, what what has helped? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy already. If we're talking about this stuff, Michael. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't take us in down a rabbit trail. No, no, this is quick. I mean, this is this is what that's why I like talking to you, because, I mean, people get to get we get to have our minds blown and what's possible. Right. And you're out there testing these things. But I mean, this is coming. And I actually agree with you that um, VR has incredible possibilities. And I imagine as seminary professors. We're going to be doing it VR classrooms, and we'll, and it's going to be super cool because we'll all be together. But you, but we'll be able to serve people from all over the planet. We could probably lower prices. Oh, don't say that out loud too much and uh, <laughs> make it more accessible. It's going to be fantastic. So uh, you, you're doing already. Right, so I'm excited about this. And and there might be other pastors who have the technological capability of. You know creating like a small group. If you don't want to be on Zoom, you can be in some kind of interesting environment and you can have a small group meets anywhere, right? You go to the Areopagus. Hey, let's meet pyramids. You can meet wherever. It's 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 really interesting, right?
1: Absolutely. So that's the really cool thing. And to to like me, I'm putting on my son's, you know, VR heads. That's how I started exploring around that he plays video games in or whatever. Now I have my own, but um, so I don't have. There are different technologies out there where tactile things are going to become right now it's just kind of our hands but to what you just said so people and in a in a gutenberg galaxy you know marshall McLuhan wrote wrote about this lines of text left to right and you your brain is like wired to read text and your text-based culture well in a digital culture in the digital age um, we're actually an icon-based. Um, our brains are being kind of rewired for iconographic thinking and symbols. And so when we're having the sermonic conversation, we can literally go visit the burning bush yeah. and talk about it there, right? So we can portal, like we're in a living room, we can portal over to the burning bush, and then we'll talk about what Moses experienced, right? Or we can go to the fountain of life where Jesus talked about you know, I am the the well of eternal life and bubbling up, out. you know, anyone who drinks of this. So we can like literally go to those places as a community and just brings this whole other level to that. So I know there's a lot of critique around it right now and, yeah. um, you know, theologians come out against it and stuff. But I, I see just incredible things happening people come into faith and, you know, so.
0: That's good. Now, i was just curious. So, thank you. So, well, let's get to painting with ashes a little bit. So, look at that. That um, I love <clears> the subtitle. I mean, I love the title too. It's beautiful. Uh, and uh, when your weakness becomes your superpower. So, without giving everything that's good in this book away, what what what, what are you getting at there? So, what's what's the big arc behind this book that when people read this, they're gonna they're gonna get this from the book? How does a weakness become a superpower?
1: Yeah. And scripturally, my anchor uh, passage is kind of Paul and and Corinthians with this thorn in the flesh situation. And, you know, the world's infatuated with um, strength finders and you define yourself by your, you know, Enneagram types and strengths and all these things. But maybe the church should um, put some more investment into weakness inventories. Right. Because what Paul says is, um, you know, God's given me all these gifts. It's great but I had this, this thorn in the flesh. And I know there's all kinds of speculation about whether that's chronic ophthalmia. Was it a eye condition? Was it was a physical thing. Was it some kind of um, sin or emotional thing? Um, does, that doesn't really give us the details of it, but in red letters, um, uh, Jesus, he, he says, so I pleaded with the Lord to remove it. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my powers made perfect in your weakness. And what I'm trying to get at in the book is I'm really following um, the trajectory of Henry Nowen's theology, his theology of vulnerability that um, in his book, The Wounded Healer, you know, and I've struggled with this still like on a daily basis to hide in the armor of my professionalism and to say, you know, look at me, pastor, professor, and I'm all shined up now or whatever. But when when real when I see the Holy Spirit do real transformation work in these kind of like missional communities especially is when we'll take the bandages off our wounds together and we'll like share about our our brokenness our struggles Um, not not bleeding all over each other so there's a fine line with that like we're like we're emotionally wounded we're just spewing that all over everybody but um, being transparent about our ongoing challenges struggles and so in the book, I just kind of go across history and just highlight some people across, you know, from Paul onwards, um, who ter- turn their greatest challenges and weaknesses and uh, able differentlyness um, into some of their greatest strengths. Um, and actually, um, for instance, one of the key things I talk about there is as an alcoholic and a drug addict, I've been in recovery for 14 years now, and, <clears throat> I continue to participate in a recovery fellowship, um, and I just find like when I need to go to church, I go to an AA meeting um, because the what, what Jesus is doing there, the transformation that's taking place, how the Holy Spirit is at work. And I can just come and just say, you know, life's kind of challenging this week. I'm having these struggles and I'm in a community of people who say, yeah, you know, I'm dealing with that, too. So where there's real koinonia, there's real like um, sharing our our brokenness and moving through that. And so yeah, I think that when we when we yield that to God, what what Jesus is trying to, what Jesus is communicating in that passage is um, that it's in our in our weakness that we find His perfect strength, and that our weakness is actually our superpower when we just own that
0: um, and and share that with others. And you use the healing metaphor pretty much all the way through the book. Uh, so, uh, and you and, and, and you do do a lot of you mentioned twelve steps and those things. So, so talk about how having a ministry that is a healing ministry might be different than what some of our listeners may have thought of what ministry is supposed to be. I'm sure you have some thoughts about that. So why is the healing piece such an important piece of salvation in say 2022? Not that it's ever not been, but how is that particularly vital to get a hold of that, that part of uh, the work that Jesus does for us today?
1: Yeah. And I I don't know as of yet, if we have any courses on being a healer, right? (laughs) At our seminaries, like we have our how to be a pastor, how to preach the word, how to, uh, you know, all of that stuff, but how to be a healer. we, We don't have that in the curriculum just yet.
0: You know, it's interesting. Asbury used to have something more explicitly along that because we had our one of the presidents, Frank um, oh, geez, Stanger, um, was actually had a healing ministry and really focused on that. And even another professor, Don Demery, did a lot of things around that. And Don Joy, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we don't see as much today. But... There, that used to be a substantial part of the the of the, of the work of um, at least at Asbury, and I'm not trying to promote the seminary, but that has been a piece that we've we've seen in the past. But it's uh, it's one of those classes. Like, how do you make that an academic class, though?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, and I think it comes down to like we have
1: this collapsed idea of salvation, um, and so I'm I'm always trying to talk about you know Jesus, His name, you know the sozo healing jesus right yeah he who saves and he and really that's he who heals and um we have this you know i i had to deconstruct this part of my faith where it was like the golden ticket theology like i said my you know sinner's prayer now i when i get to go to heaven when i die and that's like the idea of salvation it's so limited and the biblical concept of Um, you know, shalom, a world at peace and salvation and healing in this life that continues on and has implications in the new creation. But it's really about that new creation breaking into our life now. And that includes healing in every dimension of our life, you know, mind, body, soul, all of that together. So I'm trying to recover that thinking and the churches that I serve, like, um, and I think really, you know, your book on centering prayer, uh, which has helped me a lot uh, in this department, but um, like trying to trying to take a little bit of a posture of um, creating a a culture of recovery in the church, um, where we can all say, hey, we're all equally sinners here. We're all equally in need of healing. Um, and when you create that kind of a culture, and I think it's fascinating, one of the first questions that John Wesley asked of his you know, preachers is, uh, do they know God is a pardoning God? And we used to take that question seriously. Like, do you know that you are in utterly dependent on the grace of God and that your calling and and whatever that is in the world is, is anchored in that our need for Jesus's miraculous salvific uh, intervention in our life. Um, So I'm trying to ask, what does it look like to create like little islands of healing in a, in, a, in a sea of, um, you know, trauma. And I don't want to do like the presentism thing and say that our age is any more traumatic than there's been some pretty traumatic ages throughout history, right? But certainly for those of us that are experiencing right now with the pandemic, with the kind of the disintegration of the church as we know it, and the social values and the, the virus of racism that's been exposed and dealing with all that, this is a traumatic age. Um, maybe not more or less so than others, but people are traumatized. So the, the primary function of the church in this is we can be an instrument of healing. And I think we've lost that. And what breaks my heart is, um, when people say they've experienced the church as a place of harm and not healing. So I live in this tension, like I was nurtured and loved by this little congregation that, that taught me about Jesus, that baptized me when I was an infant. committed to raise me in a community of love and forgiveness um, and, and knowing what that can look like and how important and beautiful that is. But then spending a a part of my life, a very far away from that and running from God, you know, and, and, um, which led me to jail and all those things. But um, most of the people in that world where I live, they're not thinking about church. It's not on their radar. Most of the people just in general in, in Western society, like, you know, when when they think I need healing, it may be a psychiatrist or a counselor or a hospital, but the church is not on the, the menu of places where I can go and get healing. So what would it be like for us to reclaim that and to offer people, you know, holistic uh, healing in their lives? And I hope that we as the church can can reclaim that um, and really embody what, what Jesus did in his own life and ministry.
0: Like one of your chapter titles, you, you talk about the gift of desperation, and I, you know, and I've um, always thought of uh, the church as a community of the desperate at its best. And when you get people that are desperate for only what God can do, you can. I mean, th- that's where the action is, right? I mean, it's, I, since that's what you found in your own life, you've almost been like a tour de force ever since I've met you. Um, but it, it came out of a man that was uh, the desperate, and he, he, uh, uh, is, and you've never. I don't think you've ever lost the notion of what it felt like to be utterly desperate. And, and, and I think the folks that you've been able to reach with the gospel were there. So how what would it take for our churches to, to get a little bit more desperate so that we can then own our weaknesses because we have no other choices and then suddenly find out that uh, we have a superpower we didn't know about?
1: Mm, mm. And that, my friend, I think is the crux of uh, and the really challenging thing in the local church is what does it take to get a church to a point of the gift of desperation? Um, and frankly, a lot of churches just don't have it, or or we're holding on to this ideal of you know uh, this will all come back. You know, it's just we're just going through. Um, and and what I've been fortunate to be sent to churches that were like on death's doorstep, we're on the closure list. We either do something different or we're not going to be here next year. And I love that. Like I did the big, large church thing, associate pastor for four years. Wasn't my jam. It was four years longer than I needed to know that that was not my calling. Um, but a church that's in the infirmary room, like in the ER, that's my, that Jill and I, that's our space where, we, where the Lord has called us. So where we've been fortunate to serve congregations, I have had some that didn't have that. It was a really short appointment, like one year. <laughs> like, uh, get this guy out of here, right? Because, so um, I, I wish I had a good answer. It's almost like you have to have the skill of an interventionist to come into a congregation and energize a community to to see that there's a different way to be, and that um, it includes not just taking care of who's already here, but reaching out and loving mission to the world um, and. I think that there's this like, uh, you know, what we say in recovery, denial is not a river in Egypt. It's it's a state of mind and being Um, and there's a lot of churches in denial and it's really hard to break that mental model. Uh, And so it takes every church a different, uh, like we say, a bottom that sufficiently horrifies you in recovery. Uh, What's your bottom going to be before you will do the work to like try a different way, kind of?
0: love that and then you know at the end you start you get back to some of your sweet spots you have this imagination right so what's the role of imagination once you've hit the bottom or even as you're you've bounced off the bottom and you've like you you know you've your bottom was what 14 years ago essentially right and uh and you're still hungry you're still doing new things i mean you're in the matrix right now (laughs) so how do you cultivate imagination? What role does imagination play in this transformational work that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, and I think that that is the superpower, and this is where it connects with your, with your work in Centering Prayer, I think, too. But for me, that was like I'm in a solitary confinement cell for two months, and an angel stuck a Bible in my door slot. So I hope that that's not other people's bottom because it's not one that I would recommend but that's what it took for me to change the trajectory of my life and Jesus you know came into that cell with me Um, but when I was a kid I just remember uh, imagination I think this is just true of children that are abandoned or abused or traumatized is you have to use your imagination to like survive your circumstances Um, and so when you're in that the kind of situations that I was as a child um you learn to to um kind of use your imagination to reconstruct your reality a little bit I think when we get traumatized over a long period of time I think the saddest thing of the human the saddest human condition is you your imagination gets broken and you just you just get so fatigued and exhausted and you carry that in your body and and you can't even imagine anymore so The Holy Spirit can like stir that and heal that we know that the brain has neuroplasticity and it can bounce back and all those things, so I think that imagination. um, Is is like the key to everything i'm trying to say in the book and I get into uh, Ignatius uh, a little bit of his praying with the imagination and. um, Not so much like the uh, the prayer where it's just like trying to be still and totally tune out. But it's actually bringing all your mental faculties to the 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 prayer experience and you're like in the story of the gospel with Jesus and speaking and and being a part of the scene and then God speaking through that to you. Um, And so for me, that's like my sweet spot, and I think being incarcerated can help in this department, (laughs) because when you're like stuck in a cell and it's just you and your own mind for like 2 months uh that's either death or like the worst possible hell and torture that you can imagine because we're relational and social beings right or you learn to like begin to communicate with god and to yes. to explore different spiritual practices and prayer and you can actually transcend the confines of confinement um through the power of prayer and imaginative prayer and scripture and all that kind of together so I think one of the things that the gift that that is for people that have um maybe spent some time kind of honing their imaginative superpowers when you come to a congregation or a situation you you don't just see the reality but you can see past the reality of what it could be um and I think that's like a holy a holy spirit gift that God gives to the church that um we, we don't just get boxed in by, by the current reality, but we begin to like play and imagine and experiment and fail and like try stuff and see where it goes. Um, and that just takes some imagination and it takes, um, some risk and some like trusting God, um, that,
0: you know, we'll try this path and see where it goes and see what God shows us. And then we'll come back over here. So. Yeah. So, so, talk about like when you do some of your coaching with a church, and uh, um, like, what's a couple questions that you like to ask pastors to crack open their imagination, or what are a couple questions that you ask lay people within a church that help to crack open their imagination, allow them to dream again?
1: Mm. One of the things that I'm uh, one of my favorite tools is what's called a people map. And um I'll just have the, the congregation um either whiteboard it or or whatever, uh stick up paper, but just kind of ask um in your community, uh, where are the first places, second places, third places? Where are people hanging out? What do they do? And we just do these kind of immersive um uh, uh prayer practices, uh prayer walking a space, sitting in the, the local burrito shop or whatever. Uh, burritos and bibles uh which started with me and you at tijuana flats <laughs> um, and who do you see what's good news to these people what are they talking about so i i'd like to start with unlearning questions yeah um so what do we need to unlearn to actually see our community again with soft eyes where do we see god at work in these spaces and what is god up to and how is god calling us to join in So I think congregations think, oh, we got to go take the world for Jesus, or we got to save our community or whatever. And I'm trying to get them to take a step back and go, what if Jesus already has the community? And what if Jesus is not, we're not like bringing Jesus, he's there, the Holy Spirit's at work, asking us to come and join and play with what God's already doing. And then um, start to explore that imagination of, well, what if church could actually form in that burrito place or in that tattoo parlor or in that VR space or whatever? So just trying to help them really see their community again and all the possibilities that are there. And one of the, um, uh, the stories that I use in the book, Vincent Van Gogh, also pronounced Van Gogh.
0: Oh, this is perfect because I was going to ask you about Van Gogh. I love okay. that. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. So, so please do talk about Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, and a lot just, of folks and around the country, there's this Van Gogh immersion experience going on. I was able to do that with uh, Astrid and I went there and so it, you're literally inside of like Starry Night and some of those other paintings in this dark room. And so a lot of folks may be getting reacquainted with him. But yeah, just to, to tell the story. I love that part of your book.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. A lot of people don't know his whole like pre history as a as a Christian missionary. Um, and and where I was going was and Starry Night which I want to go see one of these immersive experiences, but he actually painted that picture with his imagination, right? In his asylum room, looking out over an empty horizon. And he painted the town, you know, from his imagination across that landscape and it's every starry night's very familiar with people and the the church light is the only light in the city that's not on and that was a statement about you know and if there's a if there's like a stereotypical image that spiritual but not religious nuns and duns have that's like the image like it seems like the light of christ is in all these other places except the church it's not true but it's a stereotype that people have but anyway, he he was, you know, went to uh, Belgium in the coal mines. He was called Christ of the Coal Mines. And he went and lived. Uh, he was really affected by Thomas Akempis, uh, you know, the imitation of Christ. He was trying to embody that. He gave away all his possessions. He's going down in the mining shafts with the miners, living in like a shanty with nothing, giving all his stuff away. And he actually got dismissed by the church. Um, he was an evangelist. and. Uh, they were like this guy, uh, you know, is a little too Christian for us, or he's not a good preacher. He couldn't, he couldn't fulfill the expectations of the institutional church, so they dismissed him, right? And then there's just this whole sad story of his mental illness and the depression and all those things. And then he becomes really late in life this artist who, you know, paints some of the most beautiful uh, art that the world has known. So, but that that story of like being rejected by the church by really trying to take this posture of, um, incarnation and, and, and really trying to like embody a Jesus life. And then having the church say, now, no, you gotta be able to preach and do all the other stuff too. So <clears throat> I just thought that's a, a fascinating story behind him. And, um, sadly, I think sometimes the church, uh, And the institutional variety can can have that kind of a posture.
0: Yeah, we forget that Peter Rollins. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. He tells a hilarious story. Uh, He grew up Pentecostal and he he was, he was at a healing conference where they were talking about the power of Jesus to heal. And when it was over, I forget exactly what happened, but somebody either fell off the stage or they broke their arm. And he was expecting everybody that had been talking about healing to pray over the person. And nobody prayed. They just ran and called an ambulance. And again, that's not saying they shouldn't have, but that rattled him a little bit that here we are. I thought we were true believers on healing. And the first thing we do isn't pray, we call an ambulance. Again, not suggesting that you shouldn't get medical attention if you break an arm, but it is interesting sometimes that a true believer is actually threatening to the power, the the institutional church. And again, you had that, um, I had a highlight in the book, but you wrote, sadly, it seems that one can be too Christian to be a clergy person. And sometimes the light of Christ seems to shine in every space in the community, except the church. That's a powerful sentence, right? That's right in that section on Van Gogh. And so thanks for, uh, for saying that. And I didn't know that about Van Gogh. I, 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 Yeah, that obviously that wasn't at the exhibit, but I think it said something about his Christian faith, but then you can slowly see him losing sanity. it's still at the end, and he almost like that puts story light in a whole new, um, new piece. When we got on, you were talking about some new voices in your own life a little bit, and I want to be fair to your time here, so we'll start drawing this to a close, but you said that you've been reading a lot of E. Stanley Jones, and so... uh, you know, our friend Bob Tuttle loves, uh, Stanley Jones. And so like, what have you been learning from me, Stanley Jones, and what are your, some of your favorite books of his that we might recommend to our listeners? Absolutely. So I just lost my
1: mentor, Walter Edwards, who's been my, my master Yoda. And, um, just this past year, uh, he went to be with Jesus. So I inherited, and I have been inheriting Walter's library for steadily for 14 years. Um, but, um, just, all the uh his e stanley jones collection and things and i've read jones obviously before seminary all those things um asbury we were deeply formed by all that but um i just said you know i need a new mentor in my life i need somebody that i can commune with and kind of learn from and so i went to just started in the beginning and started reading back through jones and i read like Christ of the Indian Road, it felt like I was reading it for the first time, and I just, all these things were coming to me, like, this is perfect for the, the post-Christian American situation. Like, some of his insights mm-hmm. um, in that book, I, I mean, if you haven't read it in a while, I would just encourage our listeners to check it out. Um, and the way that he talks about um, Christ consciousness and creating conversations um, and and being able to Um, sit at the table as equals, and to equally present our truth, and to stand in in, um, our truth as Christians, but to also understand that um, others bring a truth to the table, and to navigate that conversation, I think that's so important, like when we're in these fresh expressions, we have to be ready for that, because that's going to come, and so his insight just about, you know, Jesus being the only, uh, you know, word made flesh, there's a lot of religions that are about word made word, but Jesus is the only word made flesh. So there's just so many things that have been popping up and refreshing me as I try to experiment anyway with being kind of a missional thinker.
0: Let me ask you another question that just when you just talked about that, when we do these fresh expressions, you obviously, you know, well, like I've even said in class, I don't know if I said it when you were in one of my classes, but I've been saying like, you can always get people to be part of a faith community as long as you don't decide in advance what those people are going to look like. Hmm. So you talk about imagination, and it seems to me that maybe even before we get to imagination, we have to cultivate curiosity. So like, and so can you talk, again, I'm catch maybe catching you off guard, but what what role has curiosity played in your life? Uh, you know, you've said you had like your joke, you have an atheist, a, some Jew, a Jew, a, a Muslim, and some, you know, just some seekers together. So got to hold of that curious space while simultaneously trying to share um, the faith. So what role does curiosity play in your missional imagination in the work that you do, and how do you stay curious and open?
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's a great question, and it's what Jesus, like, embodied to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, This is, you know, Jesus, yes, he delivered some sermons, but it, mostly he asked questions. I, I know there's been a, these exhaustive studies of like 500 questions or whatever that Jesus asked. So, and there's this uh, posture of wonder and curiosity. And even when people ask him a question, he'd respond with a question. And so he's doing dialogical, story-based parabolic teaching, not necessarily the monologue. And so I think that that's helpful when we go into a fresh expression space that, that we know we're not going to deliver a monologue that we're coming in a posture of curiosity, and we're trying to see how is Jesus already at work in the life-affirming practices of these people in this community? How is Jesus, um, how is his truth present in what people are saying, even if they're coming from a different um, perspective religiously, right? That I'm not coming with the spirit of, you know, I got to fix, change, you know, demo people's beliefs so that I can bring in the truth, but it's more this curiosity of where's that really coming from? How's Jesus at work in that? And I think that's the only way it works in these um, like missional community kind of spaces where we're having sermonic conversations is that posture of wonder, curiosity, and giving everybody space. And my biggest job in those situations is like when people try to respond, like, for instance, with the Muslim last week that was had the hell question, people wanted to like attack that and go, what are you doing in here with that kind of a question? And I was like, wait, 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 he's asking a legitimate question. Let's let's think this through and let's all bring our different perspectives on it. Like, let's, you know, people wanted to like eject him out of the digital space or whatever. And I don't think he was maliciously doing it. It was really something he was wrestling with. So we had a great conversation. I stayed with like 20 minutes after that guy we were talking about. So I think that that that's not the default mode of the church, like curiosity, wonder. It's more like we got to program people with our version of the truth rather than how, how can we experience what Jesus is doing here that we all might come to a deeper level of relationship and Jesus' truth in our life.
0: That's good, good. And, you know, and honestly, in the age that we're at where there's so much new information coming in, the, the disservice we do with people is we we try to beat the curiosity out of people. <laughs> and then unfortunately, sometimes some of our robust answers, and I do think the Christian faith has robust answers to things, but we sometimes sound bite them enough that we see people's faith exploding. And then we blame them for losing their faith when they get some really compelling person who's super curious, who's thought, Who's, at, who's gone there on questions. And then, uh, so I just appreciate that part of your of your ministry. And again, I wanna put a uh, a real uh, strong recommendation. I've had a chance to read this in advance, but come out. It is available now, Painting with Ashes, Dr. Michael Adam Beck, When Your Weakness Becomes Your Superpower from Invite Press. This is both, you, you, Michael's very transparent about himself in here, but he uses this story. Uh, and weaves it in with all of these different uh, frameworks in a way that can help you, whether you're a layperson, a pastor. I would say even if you're a seeker, you can read this book and get a really robust vision for what it looks like to be uh, part of God's kingdom. part of it, God's advancing kingdom now, and it's super exciting. I think it's your best book. So thank you for writing it. and uh, you know thank you for being my my guest today, Michael.
1: Thank you, sir. Thanks for being my mentor.
0: Oh, well, you know, it's one of those things. that's like, sure. Yeah, you was there, but it's been fun. And I've loved learning from you. And I'm so, you know, I say proud, not in any kind of like that a boy thing. I'm I'm super grateful that I've had the privilege of knowing you. And I'm thankful that you came to Asbury and Orlando and were, you know, in my IBS class in the spring of 2011. And now that you're at Centering Prayer Book, you know exactly what was happening to the insides of me when you were there. And I was still able to Uh, somehow serve out of that off that so I'm grateful for you so tell people where's the best place to find your book and then if they want to connect with resources you're always doing things what's the best way to find out what find out where in the world Michael Beck is and how they might be able to reach out to you for some help for sure so michaeladambeck.com
1: as my main kind of center space and I do coaching consulting I'm doing some micro consultations now um, put resources on their blogs, all that stuff. Um, the books available anywhere books are sold, I, I would appreciate if people would go directly to invite the publisher. Um, they, they're they um, actually 100% of the royalties for the book go to the church that uh, pulled me out of the gutter. So um, the, the church, it's my gift to, to them for, for their um, nurturing me in the faith. Um, but obviously, it's on Amazon and all those things as well. And Hook up with me on social media. Um, I'm kind of prolific in Facebook, not so much Instagram and Twitter, but I'm there too. And you could always come, you're hearing about virtual reality church and all this stuff. Look up the Living Room Church. It's 1500 member Facebook campus, but we also have a Monday night Living Room Church virtual reality. So if you go into All
0: Space, you'll see the Living Room Church in there. You could just come and hang with us and experience it for yourself. And does a person have to have a VR headset to come in on the alt space and see what's going on? Or can you just you can you can use your
1: computer. It's not the same experience. Right, right, right. The one dimensional, two dimensional where where, but you can come in that way and people do, but you don't have hands and stuff. The ideal experience. I know it's weird uh, is to have a headset, but
0: yeah. Yeah, I would have to buy a headset just to check this out. That sounds so, uh, so cool. So anyway, it's always a pleasure, uh, Michael. I know we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon. And uh, folks, take a look at his book, Painting with Ashes. Uh, Michael, Adam Beck. It's good stuff. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it. If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle, recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying, say, any quantity over the, of at least three or more copies. You can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.